Hello there, peace be upon you. Welcome to Rational Religion, where we discuss religion, science, and society. My name is Omar Nasser. And I am Tahir Nasser. And today we're going to be discussing uh, a few bigwigs and their uh, views on religion, some celebrities on God and religion. Uh, the first one that we're going to be discussing is um, Neil deGrasse Tyson. So should we just... Great name. Great name. Great name. Should we, should we just have see what he says? Absolutely. Let's go. Do you believe in God? Me? Uh, so, creator? Uh, yeah, so I'm, the, the more I look at the universe, um, just the less convinced I am that there is something benevolent going on. So if, you, if, if your concept of a creator is someone who's all-powerful and all-good, that's not an uncommon pairing of powers that you might describe to a creator. All-powerful and all-good. And I look at disasters that afflict Earth and life on Earth. Volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, um, congenital birth defects. You look at this list of ways that life is made miserable on Earth by natural causes. And I just ask, how do you deal with that? So philosophers rose up and said, if there is a God, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. I have no problems if, as we probe the origins of things, we bump up into the bearded man. If that shows up, we're good to go, okay? Not a problem. There's just no evidence of it. And this is why religions are called faiths, collectively. Because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence, but we don't, for exactly that reason. So, so I, I'm, I'm given what everyone describes to be the properties that would be expressed by an all-powerful being in the gods that they worship, I look for that in the universe and I don't find it. So I, I, I remain unconvinced. But if you've got some good evidence, bring it, bring, bring it, bring it, okay? And so... I don't, I don't lead with that information because what I believe should be irrelevant to anyone. Okay, so that was Neil deGrasse Tyson um, doing a whistle-stop tour of all of atheism. Uh, he started with a question of suffering and then he went into um, whether religions need faith and what that means and then saying there's no evidence at the end and then coming back to suffering. So um, he quoted um, this idea from, uh, well, from antiquity, uh, the, the problem, the so-called problem of evil, um, and especially relating it to natural causes of suffering. So basically the argument is, okay, you say that there's a, a benevolent God, so a good God, so there's a good God out there who has created the world, right? Mm. And he has power over all things in the world. And yet we, encounter suffering from natural causes which isn't obviously the fault of anybody in particular like an earthquake or a volcano etc um, yeah and the, the the philosophers rising up what he's referring to is just epicurus who said um he said something like basically is god uh willing and able to prevent suffering and he says well if he's if he's uh, not able then he's not all powerful and he's not willing then he's not good hmm. um and if you're saying he's neither willing nor able then then he's not god yeah. So basically saying that uh, these, the idea that he's both, that the fact that you have natural causes of suffering, plus the idea that God is um, omnipotent and mm. benevolent, you can't have mm. these three things together. So you have to sacrifice some, something in your conception of God, yeah. um, at which point it won't be God. So, yeah. um, I mean, that's, that's the main, in, in reality, in many ways, that's kind of atheism's only argument, I've always thought. Yeah, it is. It is. It is it absolutely atheism's only argument. It is. You know, you can say all the other stuff. Well, well, you know, think about the children. Oh, somebody think about the children. So, I mean, how would you? What would be your your uh, your initial response to that entire problem of suffering? Go. I mean, it's okay. How long do you have? <laughs> Well, we actually made two really good videos. Well, we would say that, wouldn't we? Um, <laughs> self-serving, isn't it? <laughs> I know. But I thought they were really good videos, actually. They're on our channel on, on the question of suffering. So that's a wrap. 
Okay, well, we'll see you next time. <laughs> That's all we've got time for, folks. <laughs> no, I mean, look, the problem of evil is a category error. That's what it actually is. So this idea that God's benevolence must manifest in a fashion that um, we deem to be best for us in material terms hmm. is a truly absurd notion. It takes the concept of benevolence to human beings, that a human being should be benevolent to other human beings, and effectively does what atheism always does. It places God within the category of humanity and then argues from a false premise. So the category he makes here is basically that the benevolence of God must manifest in the same way that the benevolence of humans does. In, and, well, meaning that, you know, I wouldn't intentionally cause an earthquake to harm you. <laughs> and were I to have done that, that would be um, quite rude, I think. <laughs> yeah, fairly yeah, fairly not nice. But I think partly he's not, you see, all atheists operate from an atheistic premise. And the atheistic premise they operate from is that there is no afterlife. That's the big fundamental atheistic premise they operate from, that there's no, there's no life after death. So if you're going to talk about God as a hypothesis and as a potential uh, concept within a framework, you have to take the corollaries that go along with that belief in God. And the major one is that you will survive life after death, that there will be accountability, that there will be judgment and that there will be mercy and punishment. Okay, yeah. those are the uh, kind of corollaries that are necessary for in actual fact if you're going to include god in the picture and you're going to talk about religion so if you're going to include god in the picture talk about all of it so what he should have said is that could you possibly believe in a god who causes suffering so that you may develop capacities to learn deeper deeper uh, qualities such as truth steadfastness patience forbearance so that god may ultimately reward you for acquiring the highest capacities in the next life where these qualities will go on to become the foundation of your new being. And for those who suffer, all suffering would be mitigated um, through his bounty and through his benevolence, um, such that a person who had experienced immense hardship in this life will feel as if it was nothing in comparison to the reward he would get as a result of it in the next. Do you really want a God like that? Huh? <laughs> Do you? So that's, that's, you know, that's actually, if he was honest, that's what he should have said. <laughs> yeah. But the argument's a lot harder to make if you're going to talk like that. And, and I think the key thing which, you, which you've um, uh, alluded to there is this question of purpose. Because if you do have the God hypothesis and you're trying to have, okay, I have the atheist premise or the atheist hypothesis and I have the God hypothesis. If you do have this God hypothesis, then um, you're going to have to look at, you know, what do in general the religions say is the purpose of our lives? Uh, and the purpose of our creation is to essentially come nearer to God, right? To develop uh, love and uh, love of God and, you know, to worship God and to have a relationship with God. To fundamentally develop God's attributes. Yeah, in our in our That's actually, that, because they are the absolute, they are the absolute fundamental building blocks of growth. Yeah. So um, the Quran, for instance, talks about this. It talks about suffering. And it says that surely we will try you with something of loss of wealth and uh, fruits and lives. Uh, but give glad tidings to the to the steadfast, to the patient, who, when a misfortune befalls them, say, to God do we belong, and to him shall we return. So, you know, and, and then it says that they will experience more bounties thereafter. So what the Quran is there saying is that you will experience losses of every kind, you yeah. know, of wealth, of fruits, of, you know, health and your life and the lives of others. But give glad tidings to the steadfast, to the patient, who say, and the thing they say is incredibly important, to God do we belong and to him shall we return. Yes. So what this is essentially saying is that what these trials and the reason why we have this suffering is they act as reminders that all the things which you're attached to in this life are temporal and they will all die away and they're all under God's control and to attach your heart to them completely and to set them as the purpose in your life is uh, a great folly. Yeah. To God do we belong. So actually, the, the real thing that we should attach ourselves to is God. And yeah. to him shall we return. And, yeah. you know, the second part is almost like the reason for the, you know, the reason for the whole thing. We're going back to him. So this whole yeah. world is temporal. You know, we may suffer, you know, various trials here, but ultimately we're going to suffer the trial of death. You know, we're yeah. ultimately, we're all going to disintegrate in our material bodies and our souls. Yeah. And, and, and according to the Quranic, according to the Quran, what is known as Qiyamah or the, 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 the day of judgment, the resurrection. 
there's a chapter in the Quran called the Qiyamah. It, it, Qiyamah actually, you know, has a connotation of something calamitous happening. And um, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, he made very clear that the that the fundamental Qiyamah, the day of Qiyamah um, for um, an individual is actually the day of their death. The greatest calamity referred to in the Quran is actually the day of their death. And that it is an extraordinary event. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. So the loss of material things actually is about reminding you of you of ultimately your own eventual journey in life uh, into the next realm. And it reminds me of a very poignant and powerful um, incident in the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when his when his daughter's son was dying. And um, she said, uh, sent a messenger to him to say, please come quickly, please come quickly to see him. And he, he said to the messenger, he said, tell her that God is taking back what he, that which he has given and for her to be patient. She then, this messenger went back, gave the message, and then his daughter sent the same messenger back again to him and said, please, please come. And then he went over there and he picked up the child and held him in his arms and he started crying and his tears started falling. And his companion said, what is this? You're crying. You know, they thought he was above, uh, you know, the attack attachments all attachments and he said he said um the eyes indeed you know he said something along the lines of the eyes shed tears that this is a natural condition of the heart this is a manifestation of human mercy so that is such a profound lesson in how loss turns how losses enables a person to actually transform that moment into a, a moment whereby they actually grow in their personal qualities. And, you know, the great point that Mirza, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, the fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, pointed out in his book, amazing book, Revelation Rationality, Knowledge and Truth. He had a chapter on the question of suffering, which pretty much deals with this question, as you know, you know, better than any other piece of writing in human history. Unbelievable, yeah. And he, he argues that, look, if you're going to eliminate suffering, why are you doing it at the level of humans? What about the poor animals? Why not eliminate suffering at the very first sentient life form, the, the first amoeba that ever existed, okay? Eliminate suffering for that before you get to the human being in the earthquake, okay? And if you're going to eliminate suffering for the amoeba, then according to the own, their own concept of Darwinian evolution and natural selection, that growth happens through trials, you would never have any evolution of consciousness or life forms beyond that initial stage because they'd all be very happy swimming in their little amoebic soup. Yeah, and I, and I think um, ultimately awareness is going to lead to some forms of, of loss and gain. Um, it's, you're going to have some kind of interface with the world around you, some of which is going to be filling your needs, some of which isn't going to be filling needs and maybe hindering you. And that is inevitably, as your nervous system develops, going to be translated into pleasure and pain. Um, and as we grow into, you know, humans, for instance, we have, we then develop, you know, uh, um, mental needs and emotional needs and these kinds of things. And our emotional attachment to other beings is going to greatly deepen. And it's something which I think most people commonly understand, which is that, um, you know, it's when you, when you suffer a loss, it's because the thing there was, was so good for you and you were so attached to it. Yeah. It's, it's that attachment. It's the, it's the fact that you have such a positive that when it goes away, it turns into a negative for you. Yeah, I mean, as as a doctor, I experienced that with my patients as well. If I see a patient die, um, whom I had nothing, the cardiac arrest bell goes off, and I go and deal with the patient who I never had any relationship with at all. Yeah, and I see them die. I'm not affected by it in the least. I mean, that's just the honest answer. I mean, maybe people think I'm callous and heartless, but no, I think I much, think most doctors you go to enough cardiac most, arrest calls. You know, you go you, you, when you're on call, you might go to car, four cardiac arrest calls in a day. You might see three pe people die. You know, and that happens every week for years. So yeah. you just it, you become numb to it. But when you start dealing with patients on a long term basis and you get to know their families in particular and see how people love them, yeah, then you actually get really kind of. And during the COVID situation, that happened with me in intensive care as an intensive care doctor you know, multiple times where I saw had to had to communicate and update these patient families because they couldn't come in to see their loved one. I had to call them up. Um, uh, and, and I saw how much they loved their, their family members, obviously. But, you know, it's in the back of your mind. But, you, you know, to have it brought to the front mm. actually makes a big difference. So then you start to um, feel it in your heart. And that shows when you have an attachment to somebody, even if it's superficial, just through another third person through conversation, yeah. Then you actually feel the suffering and the loss. Yeah. 
So, so I, I think we're saying two things there. One is preliminary, one is kind of consequential, which is that um, you have attachments to things because you know, you're, you're, we're, we're developed sentient human beings. We have needs which are being fulfilled and we attach ourselves to a degree to, to, to all kinds of different things. And that's the positive part of life. That's what pleasure is. And then when that's taken away, that's the pain. Um, but that ultimately God does this in order to spiritually develop us. I think if we were to then apply this back to what uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying, he was talking about natural evil and um, in terms of like volcanoes and natural disasters and these kinds of things. So the overall framework which it, with, within which we work is that suffering is a way of developing you spiritually because ultimately you're not in control of the outside world, you're in control of your reaction to it and what you do afterwards. Do you become bitter? Do you, become, do you treat other people worse? And do you become bitter towards God? Or do you recognize his sovereignty over everything, show gratefulness for what you have and trying to help others in that situation? Because ultimately it's the development of those moral and spiritual qualities, which is the purpose of your life. It's not for your, for your wealth to grow. Um, so the, it, it develops you spiritually in that way. But then we come to the issue which he mentioned, which is what about, for instance, uh, children who, who suffer with congenital diseases or die of leukemia and these kinds of things. Um, I mean, how would you how would you deal with that in, in a religious so, so outlook? Just, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. But I think the key point that we haven't emphasized here is that the whole point of the suffering is a loss of uh, of something that you enjoyed. That's why you um, suffer. OK, mm. suffering is a negative thing in the sense of it's a loss. It's not the gain of something. It's similar to light and dark. There's no such thing as a source of darkness. There's only a source of light and darkness is created by the obstruction of an opaque medium. Similarly, mm. suffering is the loss of something that you enjoyed. OK, so the very fact that you suffer is a testament that you had actually been given something as a bestowal, as a grace. And as a favor, mm. OK, so otherwise you wouldn't have any suffering. So actually the experience of suffering um, to then complain about it shows yeah. an immense amount of entitlement with respect to um, with respect to God who gave you that favor in the first place without you even sure. deserving it. Sure, but then some atheists will argue, um, yeah, but I, I had no choice in the matter. You know, I, I came into existence and then I, I would have rather, I don't know, have not existed. <laughs> I mean, that is that is pretty much where, where some people go. I've heard that as an argument, as some kind of formidable argument. I think the point, and this is a point addressed by the fourth Khalifa, Mirza Dahar Ahmed, in his book. He made the general point that while people do commit suicide, in general, if you were to take a, an unhealthy child, for example, hmm. okay, um, that is suffering, and this goes back to the congenital blindness argument, for example, um, an unhealthy child, an eight-year-old child who is suffering from a disease, and you ask that disease that you ask that child, would you rather have your congenital disease in which you are suffering pain? Or would you rather be a healthy and a happy worm? Which of the two would you prefer? Hmm. Almost invariably, almost invariably, everybody chooses suffering with higher consciousness. And what that tells you is that the payoff of higher consciousness, which enables you to process and experience greater loss, because that's what consciousness is, mm. is the ability to experience greater gain and losses fundamentally. Mm. That The elevation of consciousness that you get from that is actually a greater payoff than not having any suffering and have a low, having lower consciousness. Right. But I mean... Um... A child gets a gets a disease, goes through great pain, and then dies. Is that fair? Is that compatible with a good God? Um, it is because, again, you're not looking at the purpose for which these things occur, and you're also not seeing. You're seeing the one half of a of a question. You're not seeing the answer. The answer is in the afterlife, right? The answer is in what happens consequently. So the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, stated that God will, on the on the day of resurrection, he will bring a person who had experienced the greatest amount of pleasure in life out of all human beings, and he will place him for one moment in the fire of hell, right? One moment in a state um, where he recognizes, which is what hell is, his own, his own, his own lack of good qualities, right? Mm -hmm. And is confronted with the evil he has committed in his life, but he has enjoyed everything in life. Okay, and he will then bring that person out of that state and ask him before all of mankind, did you ever experience in your entire existence, this life and the previous life, a single moment of enjoyment? And he will say, no, I never had a single moment of enjoyment. 
and then he will take a person who had suffered the most in life out of all human beings, place him once in paradise, in God's mercy, and then bring him out hmm. and say, did you ever experience hardship in life? And the man will say, no, I, I've never experienced hardship in my entire existence. And, and the same principle is applying there. The same principle with respect to the child who has a disease in the worm is applying in that situation. That's very important to note because in the hereafter, we are at a higher level of consciousness. So the suffering experienced at a lower level of consciousness is, is, is not it's not comparable with the, with the pleasure experienced at a higher level of consciousness. Okay, so to make it more concrete, you're saying that if a child dies from some kind of painful disease, the Islamic belief is that they'll go to paradise and they'll experience great you know, bounties and pleasures and spiritual pleasures. It would be a, you know, a place of physical pleasure, but a place of spiritual pleasure. They'll experience such pleasures that it will more than compensate for the suffering that they went for, through in this life. Is that right on that count? Yeah, yeah, but I think that's <laughs> that's laying it out too simplistically. And I think we have to appreciate what is enjoyment in this life. Sure, no, no, but I want to talk about the individual because we talked about the capacities and the overall framework. And no, the no, 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 this is a really important point. This is a really important point, okay? The point of in, what is enjoyment? Enjoyment in this life is having sensory organs by which we can experience the bounties of God. And the bounties of God are themselves a reflection of God's attributes. Okay, that's why people love nature. That's why people love going out into nature. They don't realize it, but actually, what they love is the fact that they are getting they 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 are they are experiencing um, um, the reflection of God's attributes, and so their souls feel satisfied more in nature because they they feel closer to God. They may not even know consciously they're thinking about God, but it's just their soul is recognizing that the attributes of God are around them. Okay, in the natural world and the Do beauty you mean of the natural manifested? world manifested. Manifested, yes, absolutely. That the natural world and, and all of creation is a is a manifestation of God's beauty and God's attributes. Yeah. So when they're when they're among that beauty, they experience that joy of being uh, close to God. It's a spiritual high. They don't mm. realize that that that's actually what's happening. That's why the environmental movement is for so many people. It's a, it's a pseudo religion. Okay, mm. um, in the hereafter, in the after, in the life after death. It will not be a reflection of God's attributes that they will experience. It is God's attributes directly manifested directly so i think that's a really important point to make to point out that it's not just spiritual pleasure versus worldly pleasure as if they're going to be singing hymns and be like in this like lucid zen-like state mm. okay it's actually a much higher and direct form of the enjoyment you experience in this life yes i mean ultimately it's the the pleasure that you'll experience in the next life is is various forms of nearness to god Right? Yes, which is really the only true pleasure I think we'd argue in this life. Yeah. Um, in in a sense, you obviously have worldly pleasures, and that they are pleasurable in their own sense. But the truest pleasure, at least, that you could have, e are even those pleasures, even those are reflections of God's manifestation of God's attributes. Right. Yeah. So, with the child who um, passes away or goes through some great pain, they are not being punished. It's not that they've done something wrong. It's not yeah. some kind of form of worldly punishment, but ultimately. No. They themselves will um, pass into the next life and uh, be compensated, if you will, or will you know have they won't have any kind of trial which will stop them from from no. reaching God. No. But then someone will ask, well, what's the point of that? Why did God bring that child in, into the world? Yeah. And you know there are various factors in causality that you can point to. Not everything is a is a natural. You know, if if you have congenital disease, not everything is is. is purely natural in the sense they can be influenced by parental behavior but let's say they're not even in yeah. that in such a case um i think we can identify a few purposes the main thing is that they'll act as a trial for the parents as well and yeah. act as a trial for them to spiritually develop and for them to um yeah to ultimately morally and spiritually test their steadfastness is, is the religious outlook no, I, yeah, I think I think seeing it as like a test is not, um, it's not so much a test, but I know this sounds awful. It, just, it might sound awful to somebody's ears, but it's actually, um, it's only, it's actually an opportunity. Hmm. It's a very tough opportunity, obviously, the loss of a child in particular. But a good example of this is that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said to a group of women, he said to them that he, a, a woman who loses three children will enter paradise. And then there was one woman who stood up and said, what of a woman who's lost two children? And he said, even her. And he said, and then another woman stood up and said, what of a woman who's lost only one child? 
and he said even her. Hmm. Um, obviously, it doesn't mean every woman who's lost a child. You know, it obviously means one a woman who has has turned to God, has a relationship with God, and is steadfast through the loss of that child. Yeah. Okay. Um, that woman will see the fruits of that steadfastness and patience. And so, actually, it's an opportunity for 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 again going back to what you said in the beginning. You know, inna lillahi wa inna lehi rajiun. To yeah. Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. It's about recognizing that this child was not mine. It always belonged to God. I may have become deluded to think that this child was mine, but it was not mine. And I do this with my own children. I look at them sometimes and I recognize and I force myself to realize these kids didn't exist. That child is basically the product of, of God's grace, purely. Hmm. So I force myself to remember that. Yeah, the sense of that you don't actually have real ownership and and no. you know you you have no real creative powers. No. You're part of some long chain of process which we don't really understand with all these physical capacities and DNA and meiosis and mitosis and all these kinds of things which are laid out there. Um, and yeah, you're right. There's there is the sense of ownership which I think people have with their children and with their possessions and with their own bodies and with their health and with their faculties, um, such that 100%. when they go, they have a sense of. Um, this was mine, God. Why have you taken it away from me? Well, the whole point is just to show that it wasn't yours. Yes. And the whole point is to show that actually everything of you was is God's. Now, some yeah. people may complain about that. So the atheist may say, well, that's really harsh. Well, it's the truth. <laughs> if it's the truth, it's not harsh. It's the greatest mercy that you can imagine is a reminder of what's true. Yeah. Right? These faculties and these things that you believe are yours are not yours. So... Yeah. In the theistic outlook, in the God under the God hypothesis, if God is reminding you of that, that is ultimately a bounty. And the way Niels Grass Tyson was talking about this was like it's something religions have never thought of. <laughs> it's like, have you considered? This? Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the major trial in every believer's life is trials. It's like yes, yeah. we we have thought about this. <laughs> it is it is spoken about in scripture. This um, is this is what I find funny about the new atheists is that they uh, they the the haughtiness and the aplomb with which they make their points, yeah. as if as if they have you know come across something rare and insightful, yeah. <laughs> you know is just it's just anybody who's actually studied this stuff themselves is like oh, what like literally people who are much smarter than you were giving answers to your problem yeah. millennia ago you know those people you look down on as primitive. You know, their level of thinking on these actual philosophical questions was way above you, buddy. Way above you. Yeah. I mean, and the greatest example is the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him himself. I mean, his, uh, his father died pretty much before he was born or when he was yeah. very, very young. Um, then his mother died. There's slight discrepancies or potentially. Yeah. So I think, I think, very, she, very I think he was, I think he died when he was, um, before he was born. I think so. And then, yeah, before he was born. And then she died when he was six. And he had to he he and the the um, the maid girl of his mother, whom they were both traveling with. So there's the Prophet Muhammad, the maid woman Mesra, and his mother Amina, peace be upon them all. Um, they were traveling uh, in the desert, and his mother died in the desert. And Mesra, um, is it Mesra? Am I making that up? I might be making that up. People need to look that up. Um, but the maid girl, the maid, the maid servant, she and the Prophet Muhammad, who was six years old at the time, they buried her in the desert. Is it Hazrat Umayman? Umayman, that's it. That's correct. It was Hazrat Umayman. That's right. And you know, they they buried her in the desert. Imagine a six-year-old having to bury his own mother in the desert. And according to the narration of Hazrat Umayman, as she led him away, he kept on crying out, "Mother, mother!" and turning around to keep on looking at the grave. I mean, that is just absolutely heartbreaking. But then he became a, then he became a young man who was put into the family of his um, extended relatives. His grandfather. His, sorry, his grandfather, who had like loads of kids. Okay, and he was he was seen as so much of a kind of child who was on the fringes that he would not even eat at the dinner table until somebody basically forced him to it, gave him the food. He would not take the food himself because he felt like he didn't belong there. And then that grandfather, you know, died when he was twelve. And then he got put into the care of his uncle. You know, so basically he was an orphan in the most extreme sense. And you'd have thought that of anybody, he would have been the person to actually have taken great exception to God, 
saying, God, you've taken away my, my father. You've taken away my mother. You then took away my grandfather, right? What have you left me? Hmm. But of all the people, because of that loss and because of how he reacted and the lesson he learned from it was, this was never mine. This all belonged to God anyway. That was the lesson he took away from it. Whereas other people who go through the same thing, they become utterly bitter and twisted. And he became elevated. Yeah, and, and I remember the Promise of Messiah peace be upon him, the um, founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Khulam Ahmed. Um, he said that the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, lost 13 children, but he never, he never, was... asked, he never asked why. Yeah. It was 13, wasn't yeah. it? I... I think no, I think it was it was eleven, and that's including grandchildren as well. Okay, um, but you know the point still stands that he, he yeah absolutely you know he ne he never asked why, and he was a picture of steadfastness. And there's a beautiful quote of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him, where which actually explains this. He says, uh, "Wondrous is the case of a believer, because when he comes across um, some some form of adversity, he is steadfast, and that is good for him." Um, yeah. And uh, when he comes across some kind of worldly benefit, then he is, um, or when he comes, when something benefits him, then he's grateful for, for that, and, and he is, uh, and that is good for him as well. So yeah, so if patience, if... patience and gratitude, these are the two qualities that are developed through trial and blessing. Yeah. And I, I really see, I think in society generally, partly in psychiatry, you come across it in job as well, uh, but it's more of a social thing, which is that the, the, because people don't have these kinds of beliefs and because people don't really have any beliefs and they don't know what to think, and they don't know what to believe and they have no real firm outlook on life. They have immense difficulty making sense of the trials of life. Mm. And because they're attached to these things, because, you know, in the culture that they're brought up in, they have nothing else really, you know, nothing else greater to be attached to. They suffer greatly when, when these things are lost. Um, whereas a religious outlook, actually gives you the tools to make sense of, of all the trials and all the difficulties in your life. And it's not about detaching. And that's, I think, one of the key things is that it's not about not getting attached to things. And this is the, I think, a little bit of a caricature of Buddhist teachings, which I think is, is kind of um, somewhat trumpeted today as like, you know, real spirituality, which is that you have to, you know, practice mindfulness and see it in your mind and recognize that this is something and detach from it. And ultimately, a lot of that philosophy um, comes to a sense of detach from everything. So Buddhist monks, for instance, won't have, uh, contemporary Buddhist monks won't have, um, you know, conjugal relations and these kinds of things. And it's, it's about leaving the world. Conjugal relations? What, what century are you from? <laughs> 18th, looking forward to 19th. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so they, they have this, this level of detachment, which um, is ultimately unrealistic and unattainable because you have to live in the world. And if you don't live in the world, then it's actually you're just accepting a form of death, but it's the wrong form of death, you know, it's... It's not mastery of the world. Yeah, it's essentially, it's isolation and seclusion. No, it's, it's, it's cowardliness, in a sense. Because yeah. what you're saying is, I'm going to live in this hole so that nothing touches me. Yeah. You see, I mean, there's a, there's a really great video of a, of a convert to Islam called Jeffrey Lang. He's a mm. mathematics... Uh, I don't know if he's a professor. He might be a professor at university. He, he works at university. I don't know if he's a professor or not. He might just be a lecturer. Not just a lecturer. I'm sure, I'm sure like, lecturers... Look, I lecturers... don't know if he actually said anything. You know, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know if his name's Jeffrey. I mean, I'm just... <laughs> No, his name is Jeffrey Lang. And um, he does this amazing, you know, talk on... on it's on YouTube. He's got hundreds of thousands of views called The Purpose of Life. And he talks in this about suffering. And this is the key issue, because he was an atheist, because of the question of suffering. And all he... He had an abusive father... And he talks about how all his life he could only see the abuse of his father as the main, like, why would God subject me to this um, kind of thing? And he read the Quran. And I love the way he talks about the Quran because he like he says he says he read it and then I reread it, that chapter, and then I reread that line. And I realized that whoever the author of this Quran was, he was complete genius. And but but I could I wasn't convinced it was God, and then he gets through it and he thinks a lot about it. Anyway. He comes to his own conclusions as to why he why he accepted Islam. One of the great things I like about that talk is he says he talks about suffering a lot, and he says that the he says different religions treat suffering in different ways. Okay, he says in Buddhism it's about escapism. Okay, you're escaping suffering. Okay, in Christianity it's somebody else suffering for you. Okay, and he says in Islam it's completely different. 
In Islam, the message is you are going to suffer. That's the point. Okay, you are going to suffer. It's going to come at you and it's going to be there all the time. And that's the point of your life is to teach you how to deal with it. Okay, and to teach you what it means. Okay, and to develop you and to cause you to grow as a result of it. So that is, and that is actually the, the, the message, I think, which is realistic. That is actually what happens in life. You can't escape suffering and nobody else can suffer for you. You are going to suffer and you are going to have to grow through that experience. Yeah. And I mean, saying it's realistic, though, won't, won't address the, you know, the idea that God created this system, but could he have created another way? Or, you know, why did God create this system where we do suffer? Um, I think that's too big a question to um, get human beings to answer because this is the framework within which we exist. Um, but, I mean, I'll take a poke at it still anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the key question is, is um, you can't recognize anything except by its contrast things are recognized by their opposites um and you cannot recognize god's ownership over something uh, unless one is you know unless one loses it in a sense yeah it's like uh, i think the promise society piece we've him said um you know a diamond is enhanced by when you put it next to a lump of coal hmm. you, know, you see its beauty more so when you have this world which is full of all these things which you recognize which you grow attached to and then realize that actually they disappoint you it sharpens your vision and it sharpens the acuity of your vision to see god and to recognize him for what he really is and if ultimately we are created for a continuing journey towards god then that's that's what we need we need to develop the capacity in order to um, recognize what is godly and what is god and what is not and to develop that capacity within ourselves and also you know you know the islamic perspective has also got you know it it is a system of merit, right? And God wants those who choose him because that's what a real relationship is. It's yeah. when you choose someone. Yeah, um, we, have any, if, we have, we have any, we have any, sorry. Go on. I was saying not, not if you've got a, you know, gun to your head saying, saying go down this path because that's no choice and that doesn't, ref, that doesn't show any reflection of merit on the part of the individual. Yeah. Um, so God has created a system where in a sense we have the best of every world because we have the ability to come near to God but we also have the ability to um, do so in a way that we're deserving and where we can prove our own worth. Um, and ultimately, therefore, it's, getting, it's much more satisfactory. Um, that's my, yeah. my view on that question. We haven't even gone to the topic of whether there's any evidence to faith. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so let's, um, let's recapitulate last... everything we've just said. No, I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's just, let, before we do go on to that, I think, I think let's, can we just summarize what our answer is? Oh my Neil... God, you weren't joking. He taking the mic. <laughs> Neil, Dude, Neil don't be stupid. Neil deGrasse Tyson says there's, uh, there's, you know, suffering no, no, I'm is not, basically... I'm not recapitulating this. I'm sorry. Well, I'll do it for you. Uh, suffering is, uh, <laughs> it, natural evil is, is, is a sign that God is not good. And what we're saying is that in making that argument, you're failing to recognize um, the God presented by a religion, which is not a God that says you'll only have uh, eternal happiness in this life and be infinite joy, but actually a God who says, well, your purpose in life is to uh, come close to me. And that suffering is a way, is, is, is one of the means by which we can develop those qualities which bring us closer to God. And one of the ways in which we... Um, uh, earn merit and earn credit in in doing so and are able to prove our worth um and that... not only prove our worth but actually manifest our worth because you don't actually yeah. you don't actually exist as a patient person until you have something to be patient about you don't actually are you're not actually forbearing until you actually have to forbear something you're not actually grateful until you actually behave gratefully you can't just say oh i'm grateful yeah so you know that's just cheap so, so, you know, he's, he's crying about the fact that they're suffering, but he's not recognizing that there are things more important than the worldly things that he's losing. And they are character and they are morals and they are qualities. That's actually what his problem is. He doesn't actually recognize the value of the things he's gaining through potential suffering. Hmm. And ultimately, if you get God in return, then it's quite the bargain. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what the Quran says. It says God has purchased from the believers their persons and their properties. Yeah. in exchange for his love and his nearness. I have no problems 
If as we probe the origins of things, we bump up into the bearded man. If that shows up, we're good to go. Okay? Not a problem. There's just no evidence of it. And this is why religions are called faiths, collectively. Because you believe something in the absence of evidence. That's what it is. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, we would call all religions evidence. But we don't, for exactly that reason. So, so I, I'm, I'm given what everyone describes to be the properties that would be expressed by an all-powerful being in the gods that they worship, I look for that in the universe and I don't find it. So I, I, I remain unconvinced. But if you've got some good evidence, bring it, bring, bring it, bring it, okay? Do you believe him when he says that? He says he's perfectly happy to believe in God if science shows the need for God. Um, I don't think so. I suspect he has the same, I mean, I can't say this for sure, and I don't want to uh, kind of say anything which is going to be um, incorrect about what he thinks. But Professor Dawkins was asked this question. He said, you know, if uh, if God spoke to you in a booming voice saying, Richard, I, you know, this is God speaking. I'm here to tell you that I exist. Congratulations, you've hit the jackpot. Okay. Mm. So, you know, Richard Dawkins was asked that question and he, he replied, uh, I would rather, I think I would more likely to believe that that's a hallucination rather than God actually speaking to me, which makes his atheism unfalsifiable, mm. um, which basically is a short way of saying that he's rigged his own belief system to not accept any evidence in favor of one particular position. Um, and I suspect Neil deGrasse Tyson would do the same. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know... By that's... the way, by the way, just as a quick aside, I do apologize, just a quick aside, I love the fact that he thinks there's no evidence for God, which we will get to, but he thinks that there's evidence for his simulation hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, <God. laughs> Yeah, he said it's quite likely that we're living in a giant simulation run by super intelligent aliens. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we did an article on that. I think one of the points is that he's, you know, he's made is that it's, uh, it's called faith, and that's why it's called faith. Um, and he's assuming there that, that one, everybody's English, and secondly, everybody has the same concept of faith as he does. <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, if faith in Arabic, for example, is iman. It means something quite different to the connotations of faith in English. But um, you know. So what has he said? Uh, so he said that there is no evidence, and I think that's just completely absurd because I mean. That's why it's called faith. Otherwise, it would be called evidence. Right, but this, but it's he's saying that there's because, no because scientific... that's, that's that's why it's called chemistry and not evidence, and that's why it's called physics and not evidence. Yeah, that wasn't because... his best argument. <laughs> um, but there's, I, I just I just find it. You it's... can't have categories of anything in life which is real unless it's called evidence. Apparently, <laughs> what's that? It's evidence. What's that? It's evidence. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that that's a fair argument. That is that is a logical <laughs> conclusion of his uh, of what he's saying. But um, more to the point is he's saying that there's nothing in modern science which would possibly lead you towards God, which is balmy. And he knows that there's been many people making precisely that argument, but he he's not really going through the effort to at all critique it, and he generally doesn't. He generally um, and and let's because he's certainly not the worst example of this. But but let's say you know, modern scientists and new atheists in general, which he doesn't identify with, okay, just to just say he doesn't identify with that kind of label. But I feel he, he does pretty much fall into the methodological naturalist camp, which they all belong to, which is essentially the idea that um, the only things that you can appeal to in science and the only things that you can infer the existence of are dead things. So everything has to come back to natural law which is operating mindlessly. So you can only explain things by reference to saying ultimately things at their base on it, you know, is, is, is natural law operating mindlessly, which is of course itself a, an actual form of faith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But, um, but so, so he kind of, he kind of goes down that line, but if you have a look at what believers have been saying in the modern age, and we make this argument in many of our videos is, well, look at say the big bang and the whole big bang cosmology. And in general, that field, um, in so many different ways, 
gets you back to the fact that there has to be a beginning to the universe or whatever linear line of universes you have. There has to be a beginning moment beyond which or prior to which the universe didn't exist. Now, then you ask, okay, well, how was that created? Because it couldn't, well, how did that come to be? Because it couldn't have just popped out. Of so when you see that and you see that a lot of, well, all of our cosmology is saying there has to be some kind of initial moment of the universe prior to which it didn't exist. You ask, how did that come to be? It couldn't have just literally just popped out of nowhere. So there has mm. to be something prior to which, causally prior to which, which is causing it. Okay, so there has yeah. to be something before the universe, if the universe is finite in, uh, in age. Yeah. So is it another universe or is it something else which was itself created? Well, mm. I mean, that wouldn't make sense because then you'd have to have something before that. and Or maybe there was, but whatever it is, you ultimately have to get back to something which is eternal, something which has yeah. always existed, yeah. which carries in itself the cause for its own existence, you could say, in the... Uh, in, in one strand of philosophy, but basically something which has always existed the, and which the creates Aquinas, yeah. the Aquinas strand. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's one way in which modern science, when you apply rational uh, arguments to the observations of modern science, you come back to the fact that there has to be some eternal entity that has always existed, and yeah. that's the only way we can ultimately and this explain is, this, the, the origin of the universe. Yeah. And this is the category error I mentioned right at the beginning, um, you know, which is similar to the category error I made with respect to suffering, that God is like created things and therefore should behave like created things. This is God is like the universe and therefore subject to the same contingency arguments as applied to the universe. But if you accept that actually you need a non-contingent start, yeah. something that did not in a, itself an have a cause, cause an uncaused cause, you, that you have to have one, once you accept that you have to have an uncaused cause, which a lot of atheists accept, a lot of atheists accept that you have to have an uncaused cause because it's a logical necessity, okay? Yeah. Um, then you get to the question of what is the nature of that uncaused cause? Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the problem with people like Richard Dawkins is that, that they, especially with his God delusion argument on this, is that they don't actually... Um, formulate the argument correctly, and then they arguing arguing it's a straw man continuously. So instead of actually giving the proper Kalam cosmological argument, he gives you know the universe is improbable, um, uh, therefore requires God, but God who created the universe must necessarily be much more improbable. To which David Belinsky rightly asks in his book The Devil's Illusion, the universe isn't improbable. The universe is only improbable if God doesn't exist. So you smuggled an atheistic premise to your entire argument. If God exists, then the universe is inevitable. Hmm. It's not improbable. There. What's there? <laughs> I mean, so, but, the, but, yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, um, but he had, Tyson hasn't made this argument here, but he's, he is making the general claim that there's no evidence in modern science that gets you to the bearded man when actually there's a very long history of, you know, in cosmology, you know, the, um, some of the early cosmologists and astrophysicists, people in his own field who, um, uh, ultimately, who, who discovered Big Bang cosmology, or rather pioneered Big Bang cosmology, you know, one of them said that you could sum it all up in the opening lines of, of, of Genesis, you know, that, uh, that, that basically God created the universe. In the right. beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Yeah, that's, I couldn't remember that. That's <laughs> not good, is it? Um, <laughs> you, you, had it you had going around your head, uh, in the beginning, that God created the light and the light. Something about the light? What was the light thing? <laughs> There's I know you did. No, wait, that's later. <laughs> um, yeah, and then let's have a look at the whole of, um, I don't know, biology and the origin of life, which has been shown through um, uh, so much, you know, biochemistry uh, bio to be so incredibly improbable to have happened through natural causes as to be basically impossible. Um, hmm. Fred Hoyle uh, postulated that the chance of having a cell coming together is 1 in 10 to the 40,000. That's, you know, one in ten with with forty thousand zeros after it. Doug Axe then did a did a um, did some work on that, trying to make it more empirical. And I think he got to like one in ten to the forty one thousand, and found that actually Hoyle was pretty much bang on, right? So <laughs> it was pretty remarkable. But re but because he was only focusing on uh, on certain aspects of uh, the improbability, the real improbability was much higher than that mm, when you factor yeah. in all the different things. Because you have unknown unknown improbabilities. Yeah, and also just, you know, the formation of lipids and the formation of all these kinds of different things aren't necessarily taken into account there. Um, yeah. so, so the origin of life is incredibly improbable. And then the whole evolution of life where you have, um, you know, incredible biological 
complexity occurring through random mutation through you know, genetic typos, ultimately producing you and me talking here from an amoeba when we've discovered that Darwinian evolution works by basically breaking genes. And that's incredibly, uh, well, that you can't in the time frame available make even minor genuine progressive changes to proteins through random mutation if you need yeah. you know two or three coordinated mutations and we've we've obviously we've discussed this at length in much more detail in some of our previous videos yeah. um if you go on our evolution playlist so i mean we're just saying yeah. this kind of briefly and casually now um yeah but they're watching is... this for the first time they're like yeah, yeah it needs to be explored a bit more <laughs> <laughs> some bold claims um and we've also got yeah, loads of we've got we've got a whole playlist we've got whole playlists and articles on this absolutely and actually best place is probably go to rationalvision.co.uk forward slash topic dash index or just go to rationalvision.co.uk go to the topic index at the top of the page go down to evolution you'll find all of our material on there we've got a lot of written and uh, written and video material on this but the point that i'm making in an incredibly long-winded fashion is that um, it's false to say that there is nothing in science that's leading back to the existence of God. In fact, the best science that we've had and the great revolution of the 20th century is uh, in showing that um, there is ample evidence for the traditional conception of God in that there is an eternal entity that began the universe, which is intelligent and wise and which is actually directing the operation of the universe in order to produce sentient life, which can then yep. know, love and worship God. Right, yeah, we haven't even is, we, you know. we, we haven't we haven't even we haven't even got to the question of the fine tuning of the universe, for example. And you've mentioned the origin of life, the evolution of life, and then the evolution of consciousness. The appearance and, of language, which no one really yeah, explores. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what I find particularly funny about cosmologists like Neil deGrasse Tyson is, on the one hand, they're like, "Oh, well, there's no evidence of God." Um, but on the other, since the Big Bang, they've been trying to shoehorn the multiverse quietly. Yeah. into into the, all of their basically uh, mathematical models to try and explain away the necessity of God through the anthropic principle. So mm. it's basically like going, oh, nothing to see here, nothing. It's, there's no, no evidence of God from the Big Bang. Oh, have you seen this multiverse? It's, it's <laughs> stunning, stunningly interesting, this multiverse thing. You don't need God. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's to get away, that's to get away from, from fine-tuning, as you say. It's to, get, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's to get away from fine-tuning, which and, is a and, and major, some, major, major discovery of the 20th century. Some forms of multiverse come from inflationary theory, which wasn't designed to get rid of fine-tuning per se, to my understanding. But the forms which do try and get rid of the fine-tuning and probabilities hmm. are much greater extrapolations, which aren't evidenced at all. Um, yeah. We haven't we... even got to the main form of evidence, in fact, and this is what I wanted to mention, um, if I may. Granted. <laughs> okay, um, which really is that, you know, what greater form of evidence could he want than people from every culture in every age who are regarded as the best in all of their human societies coming forward saying that God has appointed me as a messenger to you. He, speak, he speaks to me and he has told me this fundamental message that be good to your neighbor, worship him alone and make him as a focal point of your life, and that there will be a reckoning after your death of some sort, okay? And shun the, you know, as it says in the Quran, we sent a messenger unto every people saying, worship your Lord, shun the evil one, okay? Worship Allah, shun the evil one. So this is the, the Quran says this is a fundamental message that we gave to every single nation on earth, okay? And every single culture and nation you look at throughout all of the millenniums of human history since the agricultural revolution, basically, you have people who are regarded as the best in their society to the extent that, and I'm emphasizing this point, to the extent that, okay, the, even even the even the even the um, the man to which all of these, um, especially Western scientists, hail as their father of philosophy, Socrates, even he, even he said that God speaks to me and communicates to me. And that he tells me and directs me where to go and what to do and when to not speak and what action to take, such that in you know in Plato's uh, not or Plato's Republic, but the Apology in particular, which is his court case, it's in the and fight isn't yeah, it's heavily in the Apology. You know, the end, the last line of the Apology is that you know uh, basically I give myself up to God and whatever God wants. Why to God and, and yeah. Yeah, and and Fido, which is his 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 time in prison. Have these people ever read these books? I mean, do they just quote them? Is it just to make themselves sound smart? 
I mean, it actually infuriates me. I don't know if you can tell if I'm angry or not, but infuriates me. <laughs> you're like the Hulk, you're always angry. <laughs> you know, it actually infuriates me. These people talk about Plato and Socrates effectively to you know, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson. They quote these people as if they belong to them. Hmm. They, they don't belong to them, okay? Socrates claimed revelation from God very explicitly, repeatedly. Okay, and said that he had been commissioned by God to be a gadfly on the back of Athens to prompt them towards good moral behavior. Yeah. Okay, and and he was and he and he he he, uh, he taught against all the all the Greek gods. That was the thing that they actually charged him with, and yet believed in God, one God. Yeah, I mean that that was a hilarious thing. They... who is his, pretty much his main disciple, not Plato. Plato wasn't his main disciple. Plato was just the most um, verbose of his disciples. Uh, Antisthenes was his main spiritual disciple, and he's mentioned in Cicero as believing in one God. Well, where did he get that idea from? Probably the yeah, man he absolutely. spent his life with. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is actually the great tragedy of Western philosophy, is that they totally and utterly discount uh, the revelatory and religious aspect of Socrates and only want to take from his um, the, the very dilute and very materialistic positions of Aristotle. And this is an actual fact what poisoned the Muslim intelligentsia um, throughout, yeah. the throughout the centuries of what's regarded as the Muslim golden age is the fact that they worshipped Aristotle over um, the message of the Quran. Well, I mean, not, not all of them did, but there was, there was certainly a strong trend of that. I mean, you know, um, it, it, Ibn, uh, Ibn al-Haytham the whole doubts movement there was a lot of work against the yeah the there's Greeks the shakuk movement progress. absolutely there was but, but but you're right that they were too beholden to it absolutely i mean that's 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 undoubt um impossible to doubt but the point that you're making here generally because you went on to greek philosophy and talking about socrates and the point you're making is that every culture on earth has great religious uh, spiritual pioneers and religious people that they sell whose names are still celebrated today who said essentially the same thing worship one god uh, shun the evil one i.e. worship one god and do good to others and yeah. and uh and you know that book revelation rationality knowledge and truth by Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed which we'll put in the link below goes through showing how quite clearly Buddha believed in God how Confucius believed in one god how Lao Tzu talked about it as well talked about one god and that there is actually good evidence amongst the aboriginals that they have the same beliefs Native Americans when you look into their beliefs they ultimately have pretty similar beliefs so yeah. there's good evidence that in all these ancient cultures you had essentially the same beliefs with local modifications for the local peoples which after thousands of years become interpolated become changed etc and the whole muslim belief is that you know the quran says to every people we sent a messenger every people yep. we sent a messenger but that islam has come as the final religion the consummate religion and these other religions will have been so interpolated and weren't meant for all times but islam is a religion that's been preserved um so yeah that i is, think i think i that, think the key sorry, point can i just all, yeah can i, yeah, can yeah. I just because uh, I wanted to try and explain the context and what you're saying is even in Western culture they have this as well because their philosophy comes from Socrates he is essentially the intellectual founder of Western, of Western civilization and yes. he claimed divine revelation <laughs> yes <laughs> and, and I think I suspect he's greatly mis, um, underrepresented his religious aspects in Plato um, yeah. by the mere fact that you know, his, as I said Antisthenes was his his great disciple or the one who was known to be most committed to him and after after Socrates died he had a, a spiritual um uh following and he taught spirituality and he believed in one god so I think he's the real the real bearer absolutely. of the flame absolutely and there was you know I think a really good point to make is the one that Mirza Ghulam Ahmed made which is that these these people who make these kinds of arguments that religion has no evidence on the one hand they are unwilling to follow the path of those individuals who claimed to have spoken to god and god spoke to them and manifested himself to them they're unwilling to follow those religious paths and those religious teachings so unwilling to undertake the hypothesis that leads to the experimental conclusion mm -hmm. okay and on the other hand they're unwilling to believe them regarding them either as liars or deluded mm. so so you got to you can't have both you can't take both positions that i'm not going to try and follow the path that leads potentially to the fulfillment of this hypothesis and on the other hand I'm not even going to believe the person who has done that path and tells me what the what the conclusion is. Yeah. So th there's that as well. And I think the final point is that in court cases, the highest form of evidence is what? It's eyewitness testimony. And what we have is from the people who are considered best in all of their societies universally in time and space, we have the same consistent message coming out from all of these individuals who then as a result 
became the founders of civilizations. The history of the world is not the history of the, the Jeff Bezos and the Elon Musks and the Joe Rogans of this world. Okay. It's got, this is not the history of the world. The history of the world is the history of the prophets of God and those people who came with a spiritual message, not a technological one, actually. Because actually what shapes human life more than anything else, it's moral behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I had a thought which flew out of my mind. Uh, some people may say, well, why do you have to have this kind of... Um, why do I have to rely on eyewitness testimony or, or, or witness testimony prophets? Why do I have to follow a spiritual path? Why doesn't God just reveal himself? And I just wanted to point out that that kind of evidence would be inappropriate for God and for God's purpose. A, God is not a physical being, so you're not going to see him with your physical eyes. And B, he has hidden himself to a degree so that there has to be some form of effort to appreciate and to uh, truly know his existence. On the intellectual plane, you can certainly infer the existence of God, and that's one level of certainty. But it's a very, it's a much lower level of certainty. It's essentially the, it's essentially I, I think God must exist or should exist. On on the balance of probabilities, you know, it, it makes much more sense that God exists than He doesn't exist. And that's what we do from looking at, for instance, that there must be an eternal entity, there must be an intelligent designer. That's all the rational things, but uh, or rather the physical kind of things, the physical evidence that we can infer from. But um, ultimately, God wants us to go down the spiritual path and to manifest our worth and, um, you know, have a degree of uncertainty that we have to break through through effort, because it's by doing that that we generate love for God and we see God's value and God's worth. And we show that actually we want to reach God. So I think that's I think that I. I mean, that, that's, that's just, I, I wanted to point that out because I know there'll be some people saying, well, why, why do I have to follow the path of these spiritual teachers in order to have personal evidence for God? Well, you could say the same thing about becoming a doctor. Why do you have to do a six-year medical course? That's because you actually need to know some stuff before you become a doctor, okay? Yeah. Because actually it, it is a station which requires you to have certain qualifications and those qualifications are met by learning. And similarly, the station of being the beloved of God, such that the creator of the universe speaks to you, which is a damn sight higher than being a medical doctor, mm. funnily enough, should take at least as long as completing a medical degree. Mm. You know, people want to put in so much effort with respect to their worldly life. They're willing to pay off a mortgage for 25 years. They're willing to give their labor over to the banks. Just so they 25, say they're a Just to say they're a homeowner. <laughs> But when it comes to like worshiping God or having a relationship with God or undergoing any kind of trial or suffering, they're just, they're just up in arms. <laughs> but no, the, my, that's my point. You know, they don't actually, you know, there's a complete massive disparity because actually what they don't want is they don't actually want to apply the same standard to their worldly life as they do to their spiritual life. Because actually what they want is they want God to be their servant. They want actually God to come to them because they actually feel entitled that God should come to them because they think they're so wonderful. So it's like, well, why didn't God manifest himself to me? I'm such a nice person, you know? And that's, you know, part. I think that's part of what drives it. Um, uh, maybe that's a bit judgmental, but uh, you know, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, ultimately the, the, the greatest sin in, in, in all religions is pride, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is. that sense of arrogance of I'm I'm so great. Why did why did God not reveal Himself to me? Well, yeah, maybe and, there's there's an issue with you, and um, you should seek to address it and come <laughs> nearer to God. Yeah, I mean the God, you know, Allah says that in the Quran very clearly. He says they say, you know, why does not, um, you know, uh, why does not that why why doesn't God, you know, reveal Himself to us? Okay, I'm paraphrasing obviously. Why does God not reveal Himself to us? And Allah says Allah knows best where to place His message. You know, God knows best who to address it to. Or it says, you know, why was this message of the Quran not given to one of the two, a man from among the two great cities of Taif, of Mecca? It doesn't name Taif and Mecca. It says one of the two great cities, you know. Why wasn't it in Arabia? Why wasn't it given to one of these top chiefs? Why was it given to a person who'd lost his mother, his father, and had basically spent his youth, you know, although he's from a noble family, pretty poor. He was a poor man. Okay. Um so, you know, why wasn't it given to, you know, who the person, you know, Umar bin Hisham, who became known as Abu Jahl? Why wasn't it given to Abu Sufyan? Why wasn't it given to one of these great chiefs? That was the question. 
Uh, and in today's age, with Mirza Ghulam Ahmed coming, Mirza, you know, the founder of the Ahmadiyya community who claimed to be the, 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 the messenger, the messiah of Islam, who had come to revive the true teachings of Islam. Again, <clears throat> you know, this is the question the Muslims have now asked of him, just as the Jews asked of Jesus. You know, who are you? You're just born in some village. Well, you know, this man who was born in some village, he started a movement that has utterly, um, you know, revived and brilliantly brought to life uh, the, the true Islamic morals in society um, and has established a movement which is spreading all over the world as a result. Yeah. So, yeah. So ultimately, we're saying that um, uh, Neil was um, short-sighted in his comments when he said that there was there's no evidence taking us back to God because when you apply reason to the findings of modern science, and I think we'll do a whole lecture on this actually, um, it's not maybe maybe not in the podcast, I don't know, but uh, you you certainly do come back to God. And we've already spoken about this in many different ways. So he's ignoring that, and the final thing he says is that you know that's why it's called faith and evidence, and you've already. Um, uh, quite suitably mocked this, <laughs> which you know, and, and it's very true. It's you know, it's um, he basically says that faith, religion equals faith, and faith equals no evidence, right? And he's got this conception from Western culture, in which Christianity is dominant, and he's right insofar as that is that is pretty much the Pauline view of faith. Now, some Christians don't agree with it. Although they wouldn't explicitly disagree with it, but they, they, you know, there are many Christians who say, well, we have all the scientific evidence. But essentially, Paul said that, um, you know, faith is not something which has to be on the basis of reason. Um, whereas in Islam, we have this not this, we don't have the same idea of faith in that way. We have the idea of iman, and iman, which is translated as faith, really means belief on the basis of probability without having certainty, and that's pretty much all of our scientific belief. You know, their yeah. beliefs on the basis of, well, this is probably true, but we're not 100% sure about it. But we're going to still act as if it's true. And we're going to proceed down this path. And that's what faith is, which is the, or iman in the Islamic, in the Islamic um, terminology. Yeah, it's it, saying, doesn't, it doesn't end with that. Right. It's saying, it's saying, use that as your foundation. So you see certain signs, you see, well, this prophecies come true. Um, you know, there are these reasons to, to believe in God from science. These prophecies have come true. I've seen the moral behavior of believers. On the basis of probability, you know, I think actually this religion is true, but I don't know for sure. I haven't had personal experience uh, from God. Well, the prophets have all said, follow my path and you will have that personal experience through, through dreams, through answered prayers. And as you ascend that ladder up towards God, that um, the currency of your faith turns into certainty. And you have to keep going because, you know, it's, it's, it is a long path. But actually, I think people will be somewhat surprised as to um, how quickly they can see some form of results. Yeah, yeah. Um, Months. Sometimes I've seen weeks in people. Yes, yeah, same. Um, and we've actually got a fantastic article on this from Hamad Khan, who is one of our writers on our blog on Russian Religion for Code UK called How to Find God. Um, so please do check that article out. 